If uh, Darlene would take her seat over here, please. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, good morning. Good to have you here. Glad you uh, figured out your clocks. And uh, could. Uh, we'll see it at 12 o'clock who rolls in. And uh, we'll try not to laugh, right? Well, it's been uh, quite a few years ago. I was in Bible college, going to school over in Portland, and uh, coming out of chapel, we coming out of this church, and uh, it was uh, Multnomah there on Gleason Street, a lot of traffic, buses, four lanes, busy, dangerous, all that kind of stuff. And uh, we'd walk down the hill back to school after chapel, and uh, a friend of mine came out of chapel ahead of me, and I was kind of right behind her, and I noticed that she had her hood on, and... and uh, Kind of, she's kind of slumped over, and she started uh, walking not always on the sidewalk. You know, there's that little gl- grass strip that <laughs> doesn't have much grass in it, and then there's the street right there, and she kept swerving over towards the traffic, and there are these buses going by, and it seemed like the more traffic, the closer she got, and, and you know, it's a really, really scary thing, and immediately you think, what am I supposed to do here? And of course, you know, some obvious things come to mind, you know, you sh- I should talk to her. Like, what's going on? You're, you're scaring me here, right? You know, this is about me. Uh, you're scaring me, and and I don't like what I'm seeing here. What's what's going on, and you think of maybe talking, or, or you know, like as the bus is coming by, should I actually physically restrain her and grab her, and or you know, do you call? This was actually before you know the nearest phone was blocks away, but anyway, you could you could run somewhere and call nine one one, right? And and uh, these are all human sort of physical things that we think of doing, but this would not have helped her. My friend uh, had grown up in another country in a culture where. Uh, a, a variety of religious practices her her father um, practiced were maybe not recognized everywhere as occultic, but they were at their root occultic in nature. And because, as the Bible teaches, a parent has spiritual authority over their children, his, his activity had given over authority in his children's life, in this, in this woman's life when she was a child, to evil spiritual forces. And she was under attack. And so the things that I could think of doing for her weren't going to help at all. The, the, the only hope for me to be useful at all would be to call upon someone else who would have power where I couldn't reach into the spiritual realm. And so I followed her down the hill praying, and she wobbled and went towards traffic until we finally got back to school, and she turned in and went into the prayer chapel and continued to battle as, as the battle she faced in her life, actually for quite a few more years. Now, previously, we have uh, seen in the book of Luke that Jesus went into the wilderness and he had, a, he had a discussion, a confrontation with Satan. Now, Luke kind of advances our understanding of the, the reality that there is an unseen spiritual realm, that there are dangerous things there, that there are evil spirits there. Now, he isn't just telling us that to scare us. In fact, he's, he's going to give us a story today, a couple stories today, really to increase our trust in Jesus' authority. That's what he's after, and so that's what we're looking for today. Luke chapter 4, we're speeding right along. Woohoo! Chapter 4, verse 31, says that uh, when he went down to Capernaum, uh, then he went down to Capernaum, Jesus did, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people, and they were amazed at his teaching because his word had authority. 
Now last weekend, Pastor Bob uh, had us in Nazareth with Jesus in his hometown, and we saw that he was kind of rejected. He faced some opposition there, and he talked about why that might have been true. So Jesus leaves his hometown, and he goes to Capernaum to kind of set up a home base for his ministry. It says he went down to Capernaum basically because it was a couple thousand feet lower in elevation. He's gone now to the Sea of Galilee, and at the north end there was a, a town uh, called Capernaum, and he sets up shop there. It's, it's Peter's home, and so probably Peter, James, John, and Andrew, who had a fishing business together, they were probably all living there and based there. And Jesus kind of moves in, and actually we're going to camp out there for quite some months as well as, as the book of Luke traces uh, Jesus' ministry, and he's going to kind of base himself there and branch out and do these various things. Now, I happen to have actually been to Capernaum once. It was, it was a couple years ago, and I thought, well, I, I got to show you some pictures. So there I am. Now, the ruins there are in the town of Capernaum, and uh, this was just five, six years ago. Well, maybe, <laughs> maybe ten. Uh, those are the ruins of a, of a synagogue. It's actually a second century synagogue. A lot of people assume it was probably built on the first century synagogue. And so this is generally the area where Jesus is on this day. And there I am picking up sea she- little uh, shells on the Sea of Galilee. Isn't he cute? <laughs> I realized uh, last night that it's sort of a new way of admitting your aging when you can show a picture of yourself, refer to yourself in second person, and say you're cute, right? (laughs) Apparently a lot of time has passed, so anyway, that's Capernaum. But Jesus is going to be here now for quite some time. We're going to follow what he does, basing himself out of Capernaum. Now, in this text, we find that the, the people listen to him, and they watch him, and they come to this kind of early opinion and conclusion. His teaching's amazing, His words have such authority, right? Now, they have this this opinion. What we need to realize is that kind of comes in two levels. They they come to this conclusion, this opinion, I guess you could say, that, that he's authoritative. But we understand that it's one thing to say, wow, that sounds really authoritative. It's another thing to embrace his words as authoritative for myself, right? And so people are going to take their time getting to that step, and some people are not going to get there. But this was the public opinion. Well, this guy is something else. We think that uh, they came to that conclusion for at least a couple of reasons. One would be his teaching style. Now, Luke doesn't describe this or, or, or define this exactly, but we know that the, the, the teaching style of the day was for rabbis to repeat rabbis. So you'd come to synagogue and a rabbi would uh, quote a previous rabbi who had quoted a dead rabbi who had quoted a rabbi who was dead even longer than he was, right? And this was the style, and this is what you heard, and we actually have some quotes from rabbis who, I don't know if bragging is the right term, but they were kind of promoting themselves or saying it was a good thing about themselves, saying, I never said anything that I just thought myself. I always quoted someone. We would say he never had an original thought, but, you know, But this was what people were used to hearing. Now, how does Jesus teach? Well, when we start to read through the Gospels, we're doing in Luke, we start to hear him say things like, well, you've heard this said, but I tell you, I tell you this. And that that just sounded foreign to people. They were like, whoa, who's this guy? 
Who could say, I tell you something? Not, Rabbi so-and-so said, Moses said, right? So he was, uh, it was a stylistic thing that sounded authoritative to them. The second thing, they come to this conclusion because of the things that happen around his teaching. And Luke's going to provide us with a couple of stories. In fact, this, this little verse 32 really is kind of a heading for quite a bit of material that's yet to come. This was the first opinion of Jesus here in the Sea of Galilee around that area. His words had authority. We're going to look at a couple of those first stories. And the first one involves the evil spiritual realm. In the synagogue, it says, there was a man... On one of the occasions when he was teaching there, there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Go away! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, demons are fallen angels. What we understand from the scriptures, and it doesn't, doesn't tell us a whole lot, but just kind of enough to get a little background, and that is that there was a point in time somewhere before Genesis chapter 3, right? So it's early. Genesis chapter 3, Satan, who was originally a, a holy angel, rebelled against God. He looked at God and said, I'm as good as God. And as soon as he had that thought, you know, that's rebellion. And he rebelled against God, and when he did so, apparently he took something in the neighborhood of a third of the angels that God had created. These were holy beings, but in rebelling against God, they became evil in their nature. And they were confirmed to be that way always. There is no repentance for angels. They made a choice, and now they are stuck with that choice. And demons and all those who serve in Satan's kingdom hold to his values. They hold to the value of fear. They're actually kind of fearful beings themselves, but they love to promote fear. They would love for you to live in fear. They'd love to help you live in fear. They hold to the value of deception. Satan is the father of lies, and so they've learned his language, and they tell lies, and they deceive. They would love to deceive you if you would give them the opportunity. And they're into destruction. Satan is a murderer. And they love to destroy things, physical things and and relational things, marriages and families. They love to destroy churches. They love to interfere with the teaching and the listening and the reading of God's word and God's activities in the world. They exist in a heavily authoritarian sort of hierarchical system. It resembles in some way a a military kind of structure. In fact, some people uh, have wondered what's going on in this passage because this demon sometimes says I and sometimes says we and what's going on. Did Luke get it wrong? You know, who, which, which part has a mistake in it, right? And that's not really what's going on at all. I think because it is a little bit like a, a military unit, I think what we have is we have the commander of a unit. Just as we understand in human terms that a a famous general can say, I will return. And what he means is, I'm sending several hundred thousand men in to make it safe, and then I'm coming back on the beach, right? But So he could say, I will return, or he could say, we're coming back, right? And he means the same thing. This is probably a commander. There's some number here of evil spirits. And they cling to their, their little kingdoms, But here's something they also know. They know that Jesus is a higher authority. 
Now, before we go on with our story, I want to take just a, a, a few minutes to kind of sidetrack here a little bit. How are we supposed to respond to this strange notion that there is an evil spiritual realm around us? What are we supposed to do? Well, I look for just a few minutes at Ephesians chapter 6 and boil it down into two simple things. The first thing is we should take it serious, right? Paul says in Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. See, there's a structure here, and Paul doesn't, you know, overly define it, but he says you can see that there's, there's some really high-level, powerful, most powerful demons and rulers and Satans at the top of that kingdom, and, and then there's authorities, and it goes all the way down to spiritual forces. It's kind of like a a military unit, if you will. And Paul's telling us it would be a mistake to think that your greatest struggle in life is with another person. It's just simply not true. Your greatest struggle in life is with something unseen, but very real. He says it's not against that. It would be a mistake to think that that Satan won't take advantage of a little sin in your life as leverage against you. It would be a mistake to think that the occult is a harmless thing for, for cartoons and stories and games. It's not true. It's real. We need to take it serious. He goes on in verse 13. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes... When there's attack, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. So we don't ignore him, but it's also interesting, when we think about Satan and his kingdom, we also don't defeat it. What we do is we align ourselves with Christ, who has gained victory over Satan. We align ourselves with him because it is his victory. And then what do we do? We defeat or or beat down Satan? No, we stand. We struggle to stand. As Peter would say, we resist him, but we don't beat him. He's bigger, stronger, and scarier than you. But when you align yourself with Christ, see, you rest in his victory over Satan. And Christ has gained that at the cross. So we take it serious, but we also don't become distracted. Paul goes on in Ephesians 6. He says, Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, Paul has adopted an an armor, a battle imagery here to reflect, I think, the nature of of our enemy and the seriousness that he's organized and he has strategies and, and he means harm and it's like a battle. But but don't be confused by the armor imagery either. You see, the, the, the weaponry theme is great. It's Thank you, Paul, for that. I mean, everyone who's ever worked with kids in kids' church knows armor is awesome, right? You know, an eight-year-old boy, armor, like suddenly I'm listening like I've never listened before, right? It's good stuff. But understand the actual, that's the imagery, the substance of the armor, what is that stuff? It is not specialized, unique things that only pastors get. 
right, in their little secret book of how to help people who are most troubled in the world. What is this stuff? Well, these are the basics of the gospel. Truth, righteousness, salvation, faith, the word of God. These are the substance of the weapons, of the armor, of your defense, of what you use to resist, to stand up against evil. See, it's the very same things that you, you would use to overcome sin, or the, very, the, the things you would use to grow in your faith, or to help another person, or to escape some worldly philosophy or thinking. These are the things you use also to resist the evil one. But we do it taking it serious, but being focused on the things of Christ. If you have someone in your life and you are concerned about them, what they're involved with, or you think that maybe Satan has gained a lot of authority or influence in their life and they're, and they're troubled in some ways, here's the things you do to help them. Help them read the Bible. Let me tell you that someone who, for whom uh, Satan has the ability to really influence and attack, reading the Bible is incredibly difficult. Help them do it. Help them read the Bible. Help them understand the gospel. Help them discern truth, falsehood from truth, to understand truth, embrace truth, think truth, feel truth, act on truth. Help them with that. It's a struggle. It is a battle. It's hard. Help them to pray. This is another thing that is very, very difficult for someone who has allowed the influence of Satan in their life to do. To just even... You might call out to God so easily while you drive down the road that is so difficult. Help them. Pray for them. Pray with them. Hold their hand. These are the things you do. It's really actually not that mysterious. Uh, It is in a way, but it's not something special. It's things you already think about and do. Well, there's how we respond. Now let's go back to our story. We see Jesus' authority in action. So this uh, demon is cried out and, you know, what do you want with me? And Jesus says, be quiet. Just be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. And then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. Just simple words, simple command. Jesus says it, and it happens. We're going to skip a couple verses and go on, because later that day some some more things happen. It says, Jesus left the synagogue and and went to the home of Simon. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. And they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And she got up at once and began to wait on them. And at sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. And moreover, demons came out of many people, shouting, You're the Son of God! But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. Now here we have this, uh, this, st- this first story in the synagogue, and, and then we have the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, we have a fever, and then we have lots more people with healings and, and, and demons. And, and uh, here's the interesting thing about them. They're absolutely clear on who Jesus is. Now here, think about where we've been in Luke so far. We have the angel Gabriel. He knows who Jesus is, right? We've had uh, 
Jesus himself demonstrating that he understands who he is. And we've had Satan and we've had some demons. So in other words, everyone in the spiritual realm knows exactly who Jesus is. It's all the human beings who are like, who is this guy? Right? And, and yet Jesus is patient, and that's what the book of Luke is about. He's going to work with us. He's going to help us understand that carefully. Now, he, he, he shuts them up. I don't know about you, but, you know, at first glance, it kind of makes me think, whoa, did he miss an opportunity here? Because here he is, he's trying to teach people, and he's going to have to tell them who he is. And here's some people, here's some creatures, demons, saying, hey, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of God. It seems like maybe he, why did he shut him up? Like, did he miss an opportunity? Two things, I think, are in play here. One is, I think Jesus is saying, I don't need the testimony of an unclean evil spirit. I don't need your help, right? I, I, I want nothing to do with you. We're from different worlds. I don't need your help. In, in the book of John, you know, Jesus says, I have the Father's testimony and I have my works testifying about me. He's like, I've got this. I certainly don't need to appeal to an evil source to help me in what I'm doing. I think that's in play. I think there's also in play here, and, and we see this here in this last verse, they know he's Messiah and they're ready to shout that out. It's interesting. Even Jesus doesn't come into town and, and say, Messiah, King, here I am. Why not? I think it's because he knows that, that many people are not ready to understand what that even means. They have some preconceived notion. Maybe what is in their head is something closer to Santa Claus than God's son, right? If he shows up and says, Messiah is here, but they hear Santa Claus is here, <laughs> and then he's just made his life harder. Instead, what he does is very carefully, he, he, he challenges their understanding of who he is. He helps us along. He gradually exposes his plan that he's king, yes, but he's headed towards a cross, which is not something he's just going to drop on them from day one. It's like, I don't need your help. I will clarify expectations for what it means that Messiah has arrived. I will do this. Thank you very much. So he silences them. What he does is he is entering into the spiritual realm and has having greatest authority there, he breaks their lesser authority to influence the life of this man or these people here later in the day. He says, you can't do that anymore. I'm in charge. You can't do that anymore. And so we have, backing up again, a few verses. Here's the people's conclusion. All the people were amazed. And they said to each other, well, what words these are? With authority and power, he gives order to, to impure spirits, and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Now, how did that happen? <laughs> well, amazed people want to tell amazing stories, Right? And they went to work, and they talked about it, and they went home, and they talked about it, and they went out to eat with their friends, and they talked about it, and they went on a picnic, and they talked about it, because it was amazing. And the people come to a right conclusion here. Jesus shows that he has ultimate power in a spiritual realm. 
where we can't even see. We see the effects of it, like this poor guy who was, who was battered and beaten by these demons and tortured by them. We see the effects of it, but we can't even see into it. Yet there he is. He has influence in it. And his, his word is powerful there. So of course his word is powerful here. Right? He's had power over diseases, and he's had power in the spiritual realm, places we can't actually touch. Now, we're going to have lots of opportunities in the coming months to to think about Jesus' power and and his healing ministries. We're going to focus with these demons here. I want to finish with a couple important implications of what has happened here. The first one would be that Jesus' power helps us embrace his teaching. We see that as a step for these people. It's meant to be true for us as well. The story that Luke uses here is really a, is an illustration using a, a greater to lesser principle. I kind of mentioned it in the announcements. If, if God's done the greater thing, then won't he do the lesser things too? If Jesus has power over the, the big, strange, unknown, unfamiliar, unseen, untouchable things, then he would certainly have power over the lesser things. We'll see this in a month or so in Luke chapter 5, one of the most straightforward examples of the the greater to lesser. Jesus is teaching in a room and and the people lower their friend into the room, the the lame man. And there's a debate and and Jesus gives this question, which is greater or harder to say, get up to, to the lame man, get up and walk or I forgive your sins? And the point is obvious. Well, it's much harder to say, get up and walk, because you'll all know, <laughs> you're all going to know, as soon as I utter it, whether those words meant anything, right? But I can say your sins are forgiven, and we're not sure, right? So he says, that's the harder thing. So that you'll know that I can do this, I will do this. Lame man, get up and walk. And he jumps up. Greater to lesser. In Romans chapter 8, Paul gives us a greater to lesser rhetorical question. Towards the end of the chapter, he says, listen, think about it. If God invested the life of his son into you, into your future, into securing your eternity, don't you think he will provide you with everything you truly need? And here you are worried about jobs and food and all kinds of important things. Important things, but lesser things. And the obvious answer is, well, yeah, if he has done that, he probably would take care of those other things, wouldn't he? And here in Luke 4, you see, if his words have power in the spiritual realm, then I probably could trust them in my life as well. In my life. Now, you could, you could take this and kind of apply it to anything that God's been challenging you with. Whatever you've been thinking about, you know, here's what, I, here's what God's, I think he's telling me. I'm not sure if I can follow through with that. I'm not sure I can live that out. But, but for the sake of uh, an example here, you take what Jesus first began teaching. As he began preaching, what was his introductory thought many, many times? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's very near to you, so repent. What he's saying is, an attitude of repentance is necessary for you to experience my kingdom. 
right? If you aren't a person who begins to to, uh, work with the clay of repentance, if you will, and start to mold that into your life, you're going to completely miss it. Because my kingdom, it doesn't have border guards and your passport and you fly there and get off the plane and enjoy the beach. You know, it's not, that's not it. You're going to miss it if you aren't a person who can work with some repentance in your life. Now, here's our problem with that teaching. It's scary, right? It involves us going to kind of some unknown places, some places that are out of our control, right? For instance, if I uh, start working with being a person who does this repentance thing, aren't I going to lose some choices in my life? You know, by the time I've repented of 10 things, I've kind of eliminated 10 of my options in life, right? Well, that's usually not what we like to do. It's kind of a scary, unknown place. Won't I lose my ability to manage my reputation if I'm known as a person who's turning away from things, you know, but maybe I don't do it perfectly? Won't I feel more more vulnerable to criticism and judgment if I'm a person who engages in, in a repentant kind of lifestyle? And furthermore, what about God? How do I know if I do that that I'll really be accepted? What does he really think about that? Is that safe? See, and here would be the point of these stories and people putting one and one together and saying his words are powerful. Anytime Jesus is calling us to something, he's also demonstrating through his actions that he has power in those unknown places. Maybe he's teaching us about money and it feels like we're losing control and he says, but I am in control. Maybe he's teaching us about relationships and we think, oh, but if I'm a person, the kind of person who turns the other cheek, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get beat up a lot on this cheek. And Jesus says, oh, I know about my cheeks getting bruised, but I'm in control, right? What about, what about if it's something in your future and you're giving up control of your future and Jesus is saying, I'm already in the future, I'm already there. I'm there ahead of you. When I teach you something, when I tell you this is how to live, he says, I don't just say, hey, give this a try. I'm already there in those uncertain, unknown, those places that feel unsafe to you. I'm already there and I'm already in control. You can trust that he will be authoritative in those places. Here's the second thing. Not only does his power help us embrace his teaching, but we need to understand, I think, from this story that Jesus' power is used purposefully. Sometimes we, we struggle in life, we face certain things, we lose, face losses, and we wonder how authoritative Jesus really is. I mean, he, he healed some people in Capernaum, but, but there were others that weren't healed. Right? Because we have other stories about other people being healed later, right? So, you know, there were others that, that weren't healed. He, he broke the authority of some demons in, in some people's lives, but not all of them. And furthermore, what did he do with those demons? It's kind of unclear. Did he judge them? Did he bind them and lock them up forever? Maybe, maybe not. You know, in some places it looks like he did, in other places it looks like he didn't. We'll get to a story where he releases them into some pigs, right? <laughs> and and let's go back to the desert. I don't know if you ever had this thought. 
Here's Jesus out in the wilderness, and Satan shows up face to face, so to speak, spiritually speaking. Like, it's like, Jesus, did it ever occur to you? It's like, this is your chance. He's right there. Get your hands around his neck. <laughs> Let's end this thing. Right? And he doesn't do it. What he does is he resists them with the word of God. But he doesn't bind him. Interesting. A lost opportunity? No, Jesus is acting purposefully. What purpose is that? Well, I decided, because I knew we'd have a lot of time left, that we would just go do a tour through the Bible. That's a joke. Uh, but only in three places. So well, let's start at the beginning. We'll kind of drop into the middle, and then we'll finish at the ending, right? Just the high points. In Genesis 3, uh, Satan has tempted uh, Eve and Adam. They've sinned, and now God is pronouncing the consequences of those actions. And he says to Satan, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. That means you're not going to get along. And between your, your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, amazingly, even though we continue to have philosophers struggle over the meaning in life and what's history about and all this kind of stuff, God tells us at the beginning, here's what it's going to be about and here's what it's going to be like. Here is what the world will be like. It's about this struggle. And he says, Satan, the truth is, you will do a lot of damage. And whether you've realized it in these terms or not, you have suffered because of his activity. <laughs> this world has been attacked and, 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 and abused, and it causes, it, it tempts people to sin, and that compounds the problems, and this earth is dying because of his activity and because of our participation in what he wants to happen destruction. He'll do a lot of damage. And, he, and, and God compares that to striking someone's heel, which you know what that made me think of. Falling off the roof, I shattered my heel, lots of little pieces, and it really hurts. But of course, that's just a physical thing. What God is talking about is all that damage. And it's like striking someone's heel. It's kind of mysterious. But there will also be someone who crushes your head, Satan. And that's what we know history is going to be about. We go on. We go from Genesis all the way to the time of David. And we have David here serving not just as king, but as prophet. And he says, the Lord said to my Lord, right? That is, God the Father said to my son, who I would never call Lord, but for some reason I do prophetically, Jesus uses that as an apologetic. You see, that makes no sense in Jewish culture unless that son was somehow also God's son. And that's how it's answered. But the Lord said to my Lord, my son, who would also be a king of Israel, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So now we get a little more clarity. Clarity. This is what God is doing across the scope of history. And now we understand, oh, that that person who will crush Satan's head, that's going to be a person. It's going to be a king of Israel. Now we jump forward to the end. So many steps we have to skip. So sorry. 1 Corinthians 15. Now we have, after the cross and the resurrection, Paul understands enough. He hasn't seen it all, but he understands enough to kind of come to the end point and say, so here's what it was all about. In Adam, we all die. 
We inherit his sin, we follow after his pattern of sin, and we all suffer the consequences. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The punishment for sin is death, and so we all die. And in Christ, all will be made alive. Who is it? Well, each in turn. First Christ, he's the first one to be raised, to experience resurrection. And then when he comes, those who belong to him. Wow, what a great thing. Do you belong to him? Then your turn's coming. (laughs) That's good news. If you trust Christ, if you pursue him, he says, I make you God's child, and I promise in your future there's resurrection for you. Your turn comes. I was only first, but I won't be the last one raised. Your turn's coming. Paul goes on. And then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to God, Jesus hands over the kingdom to God, the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Does that sound familiar? That's like Ephesians 6. Now, certainly he's talking about earthly kingdoms as well, but he's also talking about those spiritual powers and forces, authorities and powers, the physical realm, the spiritual realm. He's destroyed them all, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. You see, there's a process. This will take time. This will take the scope of history. And this is what God is doing. Aiming towards a day when all of this is made subject to Christ. Great conclusion here. And then, all of these Evil forces are finally completely subjected under Christ. They are under his feet, as you will, in the imagery, a footstool. And then there's one more enemy. One more enemy, death. (laughs) And he destroys death. He's broken its power, but you see, when we are resurrected, death can no longer touch you. It cannot touch Jesus. He's conquered it. And at that time, it can be said, he has put everything under his feet. See, Jesus acts powerfully in your life. Sometimes it's confusing because sometimes it looks like he's not acting, but he does act powerfully in your life, but he always does so purposefully. He's always pursuing this great plan, and it's a process. And just as he said to Satan, go away from me, there's a time and a place. But he acts powerfully. And when he acts, we should be encouraged by that. And we should understand that he has a plan, that he has a future, And that when he speaks, he speaks with authority. And it's worth embracing that truth and following that truth. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to uh, glimpse uh, an amazing, a tremendous day in the ministry of your son. Ah, to have been there in the synagogue and then followed him home to Peter's house and then at sundown with all these people coming in. Just what an amazing day. And yet even though we couldn't see those activities and those events, we see the truth of them. 
And we understand that you bring to us your son and his teaching and the gospel, and that it is trustworthy. Father, help us. I pray you would uh, free us from the attacks of the evil one, that you would teach us how to be strong and to stand and to resist and to hold to truth and righteousness and the gospel and the word of God and to be people who walk in freedom and the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ and that this would bring you great honor and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.